Well, we're going to continue today in 1 Samuel. Um, we're going to look at uh, um, chapter 12, the whole thing, all 25 verses. But I promise I'll try to go, go quickly. So now hear God's word. I'm only going to read the first five verses. It's a long text. And then we'll look at all the others individually as we go through. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to make me, to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed whose ox I have taken or whose donkey have I taken or whom have I defrauded, whom have I oppressed or from whose hand, from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it. Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded or us, us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so we're looking at this, and you might ask yourself the question, why should we look at a, a long historical narrative like First and Second Samuel and, and these other books, First and Second Kings and Chronicles and all that? They are vitally important. They're not just simply a record of history. So there's just not enough detail for that. What they are are the authors, whoever authored this, Samuel probably authored part of it and maybe some of his disciples authored the rest of it. But they're telling us why the nation needed a king. There were enemies surrounding this nation. Every direction you looked, there was an enemy. And so they needed a king to defend them. God had defended them in the past, but they were... They were unsatisfied, which is unfortunate. They were unsatisfied and wanted a real king like the other nations. And so they asked Samuel, the prophet, for a king. Samuel asked God. God says, okay, give him a king. And Samuel graciously chose King Saul. Saul came from a, 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 a family of warriors. They were wealthy as, uh, as that day, in that day and in that way. They were influential, even though they came from a small tribe. And yet God picked Saul, who was head and shoulders bigger than every other. He's very handsome, powerful warrior, and the people loved him. And as Dawson shared with us last week, Saul's first commission was to go against these Ammonites and their king, Nahash. Nahash is 
Hebrew for serpent. It's the same word in Genesis chapter 3 and throughout. This king's name was Serpent, Nahash, king of the Ammonites. And what Saul was to do was go out and crush the head of the serpent, just like the promise of Genesis 3. He was to go and destroy the serpent. And he does it. And he does it in a wonderful fashion with his, all his troops and he does it like a real king and he uh, engenders uh, confidence and excitement among the people. And the passage ends with the, the whole nation celebrating with great joy and agreeing to go off to this other place to make uh, the kingdom new again, to renew the kingdom under the rule of Saul. And so Samuel takes the occasion to uh, kind of retire, as it were, or at least step back and, and let the king take up his place of ruling and guiding and judging uh, the people. So we're going to look at four things real quickly, and I'll, I'm just going to take a quick stab at each one of these. There's a little outline in your, in your uh, bulletin that, and this is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, at least I can't say that uh, to you, but it, it's, it's just an outline. It's my way of communicating to you. So these four points. First of all, Samuel's faithfulness, then God's faithfulness, then the question, the question that Dawson and myself and the other pastors ask every week, will you trust me? God is saying to the people at that point when Samuel is retiring, will you trust me? And then finally, uh, not in spite of our sin, but because of his faithfulness. I think this is really important uh, that we take a look at that. So look at one through five. This is Samuel's faithfulness. It's showing us that the nation needed a godly leader. We know this. If a godly leader is leading the nation and he's doing it with justice and equity and, and with the power of God's Holy Spirit, the people would follow that kind of a leader. And the history of Israel shows us that, that whenever a godly leader was raised up, the people would follow along. There, it didn't mean everybody, but it meant that the, the, the nation would go the way the king went. And he was responsible for making sure that the prophets could say whatever they want anytime they want if they were a true prophet. And that the priesthood would respect the tabernacle, later the temple, that they would do the sacrifices right, that they would uh, keep all of the laws that were prescribed. So the king sort of oversaw the kingdom as God's representative to the people. He was in a very real sense, and especially in the context of the ancient Near East, he was God's son, like Pharaoh was God's son, or like uh, Nebuchadnezzar was God's son. In the ancient Near East, their cosmology, these earthly kings were the sons of God, and they were supposed to rule and reign in righteousness and goodness, God's people. So Samuel comes before them and he is asking them to vindicate him. He's saying, I've ruled you well. I have judged you well. I'm getting ready to step back. And if I've done anything wrong, if there's any stain on my uh, time, my tenure as the judge, 
Speak up now. We are before God in his presence. Speak up. And they found nothing wrong with him. Samuel is one of those few characters in scripture that we call an idealized character. He's, nothing's wrong with him. There's never any flaw in Samuel. Same with Joshua. Never a flaw in Joshua. Same thing with Jonathan, the son of Saul. These, these guys, and they're purposely put forward that way to say, look, this is, this is what righteousness looks like in a leader. Not that they never made a sin or a fault or anything like that, but they're idealized in Scripture because God's drawing your attention to that over against some of the others that were in Scripture. So the people vindicate him. Your hands are clean. My hands are clean, Samuel says. People say, your hands are clean. Samuel's vindication tells us a few things. Listen carefully. That there is an individual and corporate responsibility to the people of God. I think that in in our culture today, the individual has um, probably overstepped the corporate. So in our culture, especially here in the West, we think about God, me and God, my Bible, my Holy Spirit. I don't need anything else. I don't need anybody. I don't need to go to church. I don't need people in my life uh, who are churchgoers or anything like that. I just, just me and God. And I can worship him on YouTube or wherever. Sorry, YouTube. Um, we're recording this. It'll be on YouTube later. But, and that's good. That's fine. You can, in occasions, get information from the Internet. But you can't come to the table. So right there. You can't be part of a baptism. So right there. We're... we're We're broken apart into our individual parts. And that's okay, but there's 100% need for individuality and 100% need for this corporate responsibility among God's people. And he's teaching us that. As we go, as our leaders go, so goes the congregation. This is why, so we take uh, at Christ the King and in our denomination very, very seriously the call, the pastoral call, the call upon our ruling elders, the call upon our deacons and our women that are called to serve in leadership capacities. All of that is important because how we go is how the corporate community will go. And our individual lives need to be um, crisp and sharp and well-disciplined because otherwise we can't lead. We will end up in scandals money, sexual, whatever these scandals are that you read about, is because the individual is not caring for his soul and therefore it leaches out into the corporate. Kings were obliged to faithfully follow God and the people were obliged to faithfully follow the king. And if all things were working right, and they rarely did, but when they were working right, the nation thrived. People thrived. Their enemies were pushed back. And they were giving glory to God, representing him on the earth as his people, a kingdom of priests. The other thing that it tells us is something we don't like very much, but I've I've got to tell you this. What this means is that the individuals within the community will often suffer 
alongside the wicked. So think of uh, when, when Jeremiah was preaching to the nation, they were going to be invaded during his lifetime, the complete ruin of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. Okay? And Jeremiah and his followers are preaching righteousness. And the kings of Israel and the people of Israel and the priests and all of them doing the opposite. Well, that did not exempt Jeremiah from being a sufferer. He suffered right along with the unrighteous. Now, I don't know if you all appreciate how much courage Dawson and I have to take or takes to tell you that because that is not what we like to hear. That's unfair. Why should I suffer? Uh, I'm being righteous. I'm doing what's right. I'm trying to follow God. I'm sincere. I go to church every week. I give... I don't give just 10%, I give 20%, I do this, I serve on the serve teams, on and on. We roll out our good doings and we say, it's not fair that I should suffer along with the unrighteous. okay that they suffer. They deserve to suffer. But what about me? I'm doing the best I can. But the reality is that we suffer right along with the wicked. Why? It seems unfair. But why? Well, one of the reasons, and it's not all of the reasons, but here's one. That in those times of darkness and suffering, when things are really going bad, our individual and corporate responsibility to this world that is fallen and broken our corporate and individual responsibility is to shine as lights, to be salt in a decaying world. The world is supposed to be able to look at us and see that our suffering has a different, a different flavor than their suffering. We're suffering right along then. It's not that we are happy and clap. Oh, good, I've got cancer. Everything's fine. And people ask you how you're doing. Oh, I'm just rejoicing in Jesus. And, you know, like you got cancer, you're going to die. And you're rejoicing in Jesus. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about Christians that can lament, that can weep with those that weep, that can suffer well knowing that redemption is behind that suffering, knowing that God is great. And so, well, we're not going to be happy and clappy when bad things are going on. But they should see us weeping in a way that they don't. We, we don't grieve like those who have no hope, right? We grieve like those who have hope. And so there's this tension that's built into being a Christian where you suffer right along with the wicked. And I've told you all this many times, but I want to remind you, that makes no sense at all unless you have an eternal perspective, what we call an eternal perspective. Most of us measure our lives from birth to death. The Christian scriptures and the Judea, the, the 
the Hebrew scriptures before that, the Old and New Testament, all point to a reality that is beyond death. We call it eternity. And if you don't have an eternal perspective built into the very core of your Christian life, then as Dr. Walke used to tell us, the gospel overpromises and underperforms. If you look at just your life here and now as the people of God, and you're suffering along with the wicked, and, and there doesn't seem to be any distinction between uh, the hardships that we go through and the hardships that sinners go through or wicked people, if you don't have an eternal perspective, then what we're telling you on Sunday morning is overpromising. But if the resurrection is true, if the birth of Jesus is true, Advent, if that's true, then the, the, the wall between the here and now and the there and then is broken down. And there is an extension of what we call life, an eternal perspective. And if you keep your eyes the, the amazing thing about Christianity is we are asked by God to keep one eye fixed firmly on the here and now, to care about the here and now, to care about the world around us, to care about people, justice and righteousness and kindness and love. We're supposed to care about all that 100% and at the same time with the other eye be looking into eternity saying there is at some point there is going to be a, a confluence of the there and then with the here and now. That Jesus is going to return bodily. He's going to come back to the earth. He's going to remake the creation. And then we are going to rule and reign with him on the earth forever. So Samuel is saying, godly leaders will take you there individually, faithfully, corporately. We need each other and right now, with people fleeing the church, and I'm telling you, the de-churching of American churches is profound right now. And they're writing books and doing research because it's never happened in the history of our country. There's reasons for it. And uh, Dawson and I, Marcos, well, all of us guys, we're all reading about it because we want to know what to do and how to, how to manage the need to be part of the body of Christ as a corporately, it, I can't overstate it. You must be part of the church somehow. Otherwise, anything can happen. We stand and fall together. And we stand and fall with our king. Okay. So, what about God's faithfulness? Look at these verses 6 to 13. And remember, I'm taking some big chunks here. The Lord appointed Moses and Aaron and brought them out of Egypt. Now stand quietly as I remind you of all the great things the Lord has done for you and your ancestors. What Samuel does again is preach to them the gospel. We talked about it at length in the Sunday school this morning. Almost every time one of the ancient prophets of the Old Testament or one of the kings, whenever they want to remind the people of God's faithfulness, here's where they go. They go to the Exodus. Exodus was their great salvation event. And every bit of the Exodus, it's a 40-year journey from slavery to freedom, 
from the wilderness to the promised land, and every single morning and every single evening of that voyage, God told the people, will you trust me? See, they, they collected the manna. They had the manna for the day. If they tried to save any manna for the next day, it became putrid and rotten. So over 40 years, they had to trust him. Give us this day our daily bread. You see, Jesus didn't make that up. He's looking at the redemptive thread in the Old Testament of the manna coming down one day at a time. And he's saying, when we pray that in the Lord's Prayer, once a month we pray the Lord's Prayer in this church, we're saying, we're saying we will trust you daily. Doesn't mean you shouldn't save or put money away. That's not what it's saying. It's saying you have to trust him. That faith is a choice every single day to trust him. All of the scripture. God is saying to you and I, Individually, will you trust me? Corporately, as a church, will you trust me? Every one of the farewell speeches that we see in the scripture, we see one, Moses made one, I'm going to read you some of it right now real quickly. Joshua made a farewell speech. Samuel makes a farewell speech. And in these farewell speeches, they're always saying, make a choice. Make a choice. Every day, every morning when you wake up, you're, you're, you're using your faith. You're choosing. Say, well, I don't have faith or I don't have enough faith. I don't have as much faith as Chuck or Dawson or Gary or Ugo or the, you know, the elders in our church. I don't have as much faith as you all. Well, faith is nothing. It's not something. It's just a choice. A choice of you to rely on God. It's not some force that you have inside of you, some spiritual thing. It's simply choosing to trust. And I think what we fail to remember is that every day we are, the moment you wake up, when I wake up in the morning, I usually say, Lord, I'm going to trust you today. Then I get out of bed. You're making a decision. You're going to trust him that day. And then throughout the day, same thing. Today, I've given you a choice. Here's Moses, the two mountains, uh, the curses and, and the promises, blessings and curses. I've given you a choice between life and death. I call heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. And then he pleads with them, listen, oh, that you would choose life so you might live. You choose life every day. You're choosing to trust Jesus one more time. And why can you trust him? Look at these verses, um, 20 through 25. Not in spite of, but because of. Look at verse 20. Don't be afraid. You've certainly done wrong. You see, he Samuel prayed for a storm to rise up. It's summertime, and he prays for a storm to rise up. There was no rain at that time of year. It was threatening to to destroy their crops. And the people get frantic. God is bringing judgment. But Samuel 
stops the storm and he says to them, don't be afraid. You've certainly done wrong, but make sure you worship the Lord with all your heart. Don't turn your back on him. Think about that. Don't turn your back on him. Worship him. Sure, there's judgment. Sure, it's scary. Sure, life isn't going the way you planned it. You want to make God laugh? What are you supposed to do? Tell him your plans. Don't crack him right up. Every day, we must trust him. Every moment of every day. Why? And I've told you this, folks, all the time I've been at this church, I don't know how many times I'll say it again. God does not forgive you in spite of your sin. Can I get an amen? He does not forgive you in spite of your weakness. He doesn't forgive you in spite of anything. He forgives you because He's faithful. And He loves you. God is never, never holding His nose at His people. He's never backing up and saying, oh man, you are such a mess. I got to get away from you and you clean the mess up and I'll draw near to you. It's the opposite of that. It's because we're struggling. It's because sometimes we are drowning in the wickedness around us and in the pain of our own hearts and our own bad behavior and all the other things that are going on that sometimes we're actually not a part of. Helpless. But it's never in spite. It's never like He's ignoring something. He does not ignore anything. He doesn't ignore any of the, the wickedness that's going on on every part of this world. And you say, well, what? how can there be a God when all this evil's going on? Well, I have a question for you if you want to know why. How come there's so much more good in the world than there is evil? Yeah, there's evil, but there's a lot more good. How do we account for that? That's as much an argument for the existence of God as the evil not being an, a, an argument against the existence of God. People want to roll out, oh, God, if there was a God, there can't be this evil. How do you account for the good? Because you're such a good person. Y'all should chuckle at that. Ha, ha, ha. We're not good people. And nobody knows that more than a Christian. A Christian stands in awe. We are the most surprised at our sin. And we are also the most surprised at our redemption. We, we say, you know, I went to my, I told you all some time back, I went to my 40th reunion 10 years ago, class reunion from Coronado High School. And I saw a lot of my old friends there, you know, people that were still alive. And so, you know, everybody's asked me, what do you do now? What are you doing? And I told them, I'm a pastor. You should have seen the looks I got. Oh, what? Well, you? You know, I was in jail. I was a drunk. I was running around with a rough crowd. I did all this stuff. And I would say, I said to my few friends, I said, really? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm as surprised as you are. I don't, know what, I don't know how I got here. But here I am. They even asked me to pray over the meal at the 
which was a joke, man, having me pray over my high school classes, kneel. Amazing grace, amazing love. How can it be that God, my Savior, died for me? How can that be? Astonishing. Not in spite of. Don't be afraid, he says. You have done wrong. Worship me. Worship me. I'm worthy. Not in spite of, but because of. Look at these last few verses. 22 through 25. Some of the most beautiful verses in our scriptures. The Lord will not abandon his people. That would dishonor his name. For it pleased the Lord. I don't know why it pleased him to choose me. I know why he chose Theo. I mean, just look at him. Wouldn't you all choose Theo? I would. I wanted them to name him Charles. They wouldn't do it. (laughs) Think about it. Of course you would choose, because he's a little cutie pie and just want to squeeze him. And then we get to be this age and we go, God, why would he choose me? What? Why? If you can find one speck of anything in yourself that is worthy of God's love, then you don't understand the gospel. He did not love us because of our faithfulness or because of our, choo- of our choosing Him. He, it's the opposite. He loves us because He loves us. And you say, I don't understand that. Why does He love us? Because He is love. Yes? He is love. He loves His people. And He makes a move to His people. And the corporate and the individual come together in this whole idea of what we call in theology federal headship of the one, the king, representing his people to God. Of the prophet speaking for God to the people. Of the priest, singly, mediating the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And so in our tradition... We have a very rich theology of prophet, priest, and king, of federal headship, of God. We are represented in some way by another, corporately. Why can you trust Him? How do you trust Him? How in the world do we trust Him day after day after day? Even when we're wicked, like he said, you've certainly done wrong. What in the world is going to bring you back? Nobody comes back to God if he is a scolding God shaking his finger like this. The only thing that's going to bring you back are open arms, knowing that he is faithful and not looking at your unfaithfulness. Repentance is two-sided. One, you repent from your sin. The other, you turn to God and you look to Him. Without that, your repentance is just your feeble attempt at a good work. That's all. But if you turn to God, 
and look to him, here is what you're going to see. Listen, I'll finish with this. Jesus stood outside of a tomb, Lazarus, and he says to the dead man inside, dead four days, already stinky, Lazarus, come out. And the scripture says, he that was dead came out, wrapped in cloths of burial. Now, you cannot imagine what that must have done to the crowd. Huge crowd of friends, family, and religious leaders. Lazarus was a prominent person, a friend of Jesus. And so the religious leaders go away, and here's what they say. They saw this miracle of a dead man coming out of a grave, and here's what they say. The leading priests and the Pharisees, the high council, what are we going to do? This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, everyone is going to believe in him. And the Roman army is going to come and destroy the temple and the nation and take away our stuff. Caiaphas, the high priest, says to them, Caiaphas is one of the ones responsible for crucifying Jesus, but listen to what he says. Caiaphas, the high priest, said, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't you realize that it's better that one man should die for the nation than that the whole nation be destroyed? And then parenthetically, John says this. Caiaphas didn't know, didn't say this on his own. As high priest, he was prophesying. Jesus would die for the entire nation. And not only for that nation, listen, not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered across the world. The individual, Jesus, taking our place on the cross for you individually, but for you corporately as well. From the beginning to the end of this story of Samuel, we're seeing the development of the Davidic history of Israel and this great king who would stand righteously before his people and be slaughtered. Slaughtered for you, as you, in your place. And he's holding out his hand. Every Sunday we do this, folks. We hold out our hand and say, will you trust this great king? This is the basis to trust him. Me for you, God says. Not you for me. Will you trust him? I hope you will. Father, we thank you for this great king, our Lord Jesus Christ, who filled the role of prophet, priest, and king perfectly for us, as us. Lord Jesus, help us. Save us. Have mercy on us and grant us salvation by grace. Amen.